Welcome to Panelism, the podcast where we talk about the comics and graphic novels worth having on your shelf, and sometimes more. I am Taylor Trask. I'm Todd. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's he's dropped the A, everybody. He's just Todd. Yep. There was, there was a competing Todd A, uh, two towns over, and um, after a lengthy <laughs> legal dispute and a, a lot of money that Todd spent personally uh, in oh, court. I, I can't. Um, I can't discuss it. Actually, <laughs> prevented exactly. Under the terms sorry, of sorry, that. I even brought it up. Yeah, <laughs> it's like one of those patent trolls in Texas. You know, they just sort of like oh, it's the same thing. Same, just a guy. He just he randomly, um, you know, calls himself new names and then he just registers the hell out of him. So yeah, so it's just Todd today. Although that's you know we're we're gonna fight it. We're gonna fight it. We'll keep you updated. Um, but it yeah. has, it has been a fair fair moment since we last chatted, and um, you know we did up sort of a sure lengthy. Has pre-show chat but i'd love to I'd love to poke around a little more and see what what you've been up to yeah we did a uh lengthy pre-show chat and didn't even talk about like geeky stuff um which no. i continue to you know be waiting in for sure uh i we talked about last time how we we would maybe intro shows with like hey what what are you what are you watching what are you reading or whatever i have yeah. been re-watching the latter of Avengers movies. So interesting. Yeah. I've done both guardians, um, Thor Ragnarok, uh, infinity war and end game. And I'm trying to think if I've done anything else, but as you know, and I don't know if we want to get into this too much. This, this was inspired by, um, my nine year old niece having very strong opinions on the age of Ultron. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so she's gonna start I, a podcast next week folks with her her other little friends that they're gonna <laughs> we're, we're trying we're trying to book her but she's in demand <laughs> but it's been yeah she uh so i it kind of made me think like oh i need to i need to you know rewatch this stuff and um wow is it different once the russos take over you know like yeah yeah i mean it, it it's I, I, yeah, I, I have also watched many, many videos trying to explain the time travel of Endgame, <laughs> and so far, none of them has suggested why don't you just go back to the beginning of Infinity War and kill Vision. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is the thing that has puzzled me <laughs> low these five years <laughs> or whatever. Like, I. <laughs> This is so. This is so interesting because I I have I recently rewatched uh, the Infinity Saga, or sorry, mm-hmm. I just the, the last two, the War and yeah. Endgame, um, and for the first time, and I've probably seen them now a dozen times each. For the first time, I finally get the time travel logic that they were adhering to in Endgame because when they explained it, I, when they're like Back to the Future's bullshit, I'm like, right. but it isn't. And then they, you know, and then I think either. Ruffalo or um, or yes. uh, Ant Man was it's, like explaining, or somebody was explaining like your 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 future, your, but it was it was all relative yeah. to the person. Yeah, and so, so that was the thing I was missing because I'm like, oh, you mean the person's future is, but then everybody else is still in the past. So it's I still I think I still think it's flawed, but I finally right. get what they were trying to say. Right, I was like, okay. I I feel like I do too. I don't know if we want to get into it here, but yeah, no. I, that, I think I think that thing headache. that Hulk says about. Your future becomes the past. As I think you're onto something. I think that's yeah. I, I bet you and I agree I, on this. 
I really hope Loki clarifies a lot of this because there's going to be a lot of time travel and a lot of sort of alternate timelines. And I'm, my hope is that like that sort of contextualizes what, what Hulk was saying was like, yeah, yeah. Okay, so in this one, like relative to this person, their past is now their future, blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I, that's my hope, you know, cause they kind yeah. of, they're really, Marvel is good at a lot of things, but they're really good at sort of just putting things in movies, whether they're meant for some, some later date or not. And having other people sort of pick up those balls and go, well, let's, you, let's run with this. Let's well, take this a, a couple miles down the road. I mean, that's one of the things that I've been marveling at as I rewatch these is that uh, it just, even if they didn't plant certain clues, there is just the, um, what do I want to say? Like the, the consciousness to, to use those things, you know, to pull things out of earlier movies and put them in the infinity saga is so clever. Like even if it wasn't done on purpose, just to, just to follow up on it, and make it seem like it had a purpose. Like I, I'm totally satisfied by those movies. I mean, yeah, I think the time travel is frustrating and, and I do not understand and uh, the, the unwillingness to sacrifice an artificial intelligence, uh, who's when he creation- was himself willing, he was willing to be sacrificed. And, He's he and, was the first one to right. suggest it. He's like, we got to kill me. And no, whose no, creation, no, no man's behind. And whose creation was problematic to begin with. Like, arguably the reason that Sokovia happened, you know, like this is not, mm-hmm. you know, this was not a good thing that they did in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, wouldn't it have been different if they'd gone back in time and just said, you know what, let's never create Ultron. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know, you're right though. You're right though. It, it, there's a shift when the Russos take hold, much like the shift that uh, occurred during the third Harry Potter movie where Alfonso Cuaron oh, yeah, uh, yeah. directed it. And then from wow. that point on, no matter who directed it, the style was sort of locked into that vibe. Like they redesigned Hogwarts, they, you know, they used new locations, but then they kept that throughout the rest of it. So you watch those first Christopher Columbus movies and they're, they're a, there's definitely a certain aesthetic and then that shifts and doesn't change. You know, I was. it's funny you say this because I was rewatching just yes, no, two days ago over the weekend, I was rewatching um, Iron Man one and two and um, right. Right. And, uh, you know, both of those were John Favreau. Both of those were what, 2008 and 2010. Um, and so that, and then you even like, and not too long ago, I watched that first Kenneth Branagh Thor movie and they're all, mm. there's definitely a different feel of that, you know, pre Avengers MCU, those first, that first slate of movies, even the first Avengers movie itself, it all kind of feels like it's of one thing, um, stylistically. And then yeah. you know, there's the Russo thing, which I love too, but it, it feels like everything has kind of followed that lead since, um, even the movies that are a little bit more off the beaten path, um, maybe black, Pan- how even black Panther kind of has that feel. There's a, I don't, I can't explain it. I can't describe it. Um, but there's, there's a, definitely a different feel. Although here's, here's, what's interesting. That first Iron Man movie has so much baked into it. And then the, you know, people appreciated yeah. Iron Man two, And I'll, I'll, I'll say just as much about Iron Man two, maybe even more Iron Man two. They really, it's like they, so much of those two movies are imp- uh, improvised. I don't think people realize like so much of those are improvised. In fact, I think even the first Iron Man, they had an outline like a Christopher guest movie, but then they didn't have a lot of dialogue. And so a lot of that was just on the spot. Yikes. So it feels like by Iron Man 2, that cast and that that sort of way of working mm. uh, really congealed. And so even though, I don't know why people don't like it as much, but there's so many moments in both movies that 
we just completely take for granted now that we're at that time like, wow, this is the first time I've you know, anybody's ever done this or has injected like this level of levity, but still treating it seriously. Like it wasn't camp. It was just like funny and fun, you know, like that sort of thing. And then yeah. Downey Jr. is like completely casual throughout. You know, he's just the way he plays Tony Stark sets a certain tone too. So it's, I don't know. It's, I, I find myself, I found myself kind of craving that, that the way it all started, you know, sort of those early, those first movies when you didn't quite know what to expect. And then it kept shifting styles and yet they tried to synthesize it all together. Like I, I feel like that losing that in, in latter years has been, I don't know. I mean, I, I understand why it happened. I just feel like it, it's, we've lost a certain something, you know, mm. that's just, that's just me. Well, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I, I appreciate it all. But I definitely, um, I don't know. The, I think the Russos have a they have a problem with like plot stuff. Like Civil War drives me crazy because I, I don't understand why they. The, why, I don't. <laughs> that's the a, a classic place for the like meme of well that escalated quickly. You know, I, I think perfectly applies to that. You know that that movie. Interestingly, to me just, the yeah did did Marcus and McQuer- McCleary McQuarrie the the guys who wrote Endgame and Civil War did they direct? I think they wrote uh, Winter Soldier. As Winter well. Soldier. And, I and, think they or, did Winter, yeah, Winter Soldier, Soldier, but I don't know about Civil War. Who wrote Civil War? Maybe. Let's find this out. Anyway, first of all, kudos on making a Harry Potter reference that I actually understood. <laughs> Yay! Great! Yeah. <laughs> because I remember when I was forced uh, <laughs> or cajoled into watching all of those movies in order. Uh, when the third one happened, I was like, finally. <laughs> Yeah, now we're yeah. kicking ass. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what about you? Did Marcus McFeely oh. did write Civil War, by the way, for the record. Oh, nice. So what uh, what about you? What have you been consuming uh, besides the Iron Man one? Oh, two? yeah. I have one thing in particular I've been meaning to to. I think I pressed it to you on our discord channel that we sort of privately maintain. But um, I kind of a quick long story made short uh, about a year and a half ago I became aware of a thing called David Burns American Utopia oh at my that God. point in time it was a stage show that he was sort of debuting at like Glastonbury sort of festival kind of kind of stages yeah and I, remember I saw it in the theater posted, oh you did well as yeah. a concert like not as a Broadway thing uh, yes uh, yes okay but he, he toured with the okay. uh, with the whole show yeah, yeah. Before it was on Broadway, he toured it, and he, even before that, I think he did it. There was a kind of an early proto version of it. So it's the thing that has been around for a while. It's evolved along the way as he sort of tools with it, and eventually wound up on Broadway, and eventually wound up being filmed by Spike Lee for a um, live, con- you know, sort of live yeah. concert special that is now exclusive on HBO Max. Yeah, or you can rent or buy it, you know, on Amazon, whatever. Um, so I. <laughs> I originally hated this thing. I remember seeing a YouTube mm. video of it when it was still in concert form. And I just was like, I watched maybe 10, 12 minutes of it. And I was like, this, I hate everything about this. I hate the oh, dancing. I hate that they're all wearing uniform suits. I hate that it's, there doesn't seem to be any sort of rhyme or reason to any of this. Like what is going on? Um, why are they barefoot? Like just none of it made any sense to me. And then when I heard it was going to Broadway, I was like, Oh Jesus, what a, what a pretentious bunch of nonsense. And it mm. took, that took the vision of Spike Lee to really turn me around on this. And I had sort of been heading that way very slowly. Anyway, I've, over the past year, my sort of fandom of David Byrne has kind of started to, started to increase. And then I saw them do a, 
two of the songs on Saturday Night Live. I was like, oh, interesting. I hadn't heard those songs hmm. before. Like he did, I think he did Toe Jam as one of them. I was like, oh, I like that song. That, that must be new. Started sent me down the David Byrne rabbit hole, but then I was watching the Spike Lee directed thing, and I'm like, this. I, there's still aspects of it I think are 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 not the right decisions. Like I don't think the gray suit thing works, um, considering what he's trying to do and like how he's kind of trying to showcase the vibrancy and and freedom of the American spirit. Like let's get a little bit more uh, visual stimulation. Like the stage, I, I think the stage is amazing. I think like I have basically become this thing's John the Baptist. Like I'm going from <laughs> town to town saying you have to watch this even if you don't love it the first time watch it six more times you will hmm. eventually like it. it is it is magical so for those of you who are not familiar david byrne he's on a stage with i think a, a band of like 13 or 14 people oh my god um, so many all shapes all shapes and sizes men women you know whatever ages it's all over the place and Turtles. it's completely mobile the entire stage is completely barren there are uh three sides of curtains that that flank the stage and the curtains are of this kind of interesting, almost like chain mail material. So they can enter and exit from any point on the stage, no matter where they are. And, and the backstage is still concealed. It's kind of a neat concept. And they are all barefoot. Um, and they're, it's highly, highly percussive. But even like the trap set is Ugh. broken down and everybody's mobile. Um, yeah. Even the keyboards is like a dude's got like arm, you know, shoulder straps on. He's lugging this big keyboard around. And um, they all wear matching identical gray, kind of gray uh, uniform suits. Um, and then they, and then the whole thing, it, it's the same set list and it starts with, it's, it starts very slow. It's just David Byrne on stage with like a brain in a jar essentially. And then it builds and slowly more people come in. And as they kind of elevate the energy of the songs newer, and by the time they get to about four or five songs in, like the entire band is on stage. I think with the song E Zimbra, the final section comes out like the percussive section. And so it's it's so perfectly shot like you really like there's a there's a really great sense of energy and just sort of you you know the camera is really close on stage and yet he's got some really great overhead shots and wide shots the uh sound mixing i have to give ultimate credit to because even on the spotify album it's great but on that tv show like this the sound is perfect like it is hmm. it is perfectly captured to the point where you're constantly asking yourself how can a mobile band be creating a sound this vibrant and like you know precise and so so interesting and so it takes you through a good chunk of the david Byrne solo catalog with a few talking head songs sprinkled in and he does he stops along the way to sort of tell stories and weave a bit of a, a light uh narrative element around everything but it's not like a it's not a three-act structure there's not like a you know there's not characters per se but it is sort of evocative of the American experience in different ways. So you slowly kind of start to get a feel for what he was going for and kind of what he's trying to do. And it's, I don't know. I, again, for, I went from, I hate this. I want this removed from, from culture to now everybody needs to see this. Um, I still have, I still have things I think hmm. it could improve. It's not perfect. It's not, you know, it's not like the most perfect thing ever built, but I'm like for what it is. And for like, I mean, it's David Burns point of view at a particular time. And I understand all the decisions. Um, you know they're justified decisions but like they're not my i think that he could have maybe even gone a little further but that's just me hmm. but well, um, i'll take the, i'll take the recommend. con i'll take the con in that argument and say uh it is perfect and david byrne is a beautiful genius <laughs> <laughs> and you should absorb everything that man does uh but interestingly so i went in totally cold uh just didn't know what i was going to see just that i was going to see david byrne 
um, in a, a large theater where I'd seen other music. And, oh, my God, it was just so beautiful. Like, the whole experience was un- just amazing, you know. To sit in a theater and watch that, like, unfold in front of you on a stage was a transformative kind of thing, you know. Now, okay, uh, so just, you saw you saw it on a you saw it on a big screen. Does the no, 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 no. I saw dance? I saw the band perform. Like I saw the live show. Oh like, my god. Okay, so then is, does the ginger dancing guy is he just as sort of uh, unlar- alarming live as he is on screen? Because it's like that's the one guy that I'm like very much a little so. much, dude. <laughs> a little much. There's this guy. So there's uh, among the band there are two dedicated dancers. Who I can't even like describe their choreography. Yeah, they're backup singers too. I but their choreography yeah. it cannot be described by by humans. Like it is, I it, it's like a combination of like a seizure and like uh, voguing, mm. but also like some Christine and the Queens, and and yet it sort of makes sense, but then does it at the same time? It's very strange. But there's it, it does feel dancers, like a, a choreographer tried to make better movements out of David Burns dancing and then like gave that to other people. <laughs> like if yeah. you picture well, him no. dancing with the talking heads, that was like, you know, the like really like uh, angular and robotic kind of like lurching movements. It's like they turned that into a dance and that's what these, I they- have, I actually have inside knowledge on this. So he did a tour, <laughs> I think about 10 or 15 years ago um, that he references in his book, uh, how music works which is a great book, by the way. I mean, it's even if you did music businesses like a degree in college, like I did, like get this book. It's it's fantastic. It's another wonderful thing of David Burns' mind. But he talks about this tour he did, where for the first time he brought dancers on stage, but he wanted them to be. I think he had four, and he wanted them to look like normal, average people. And then he, the choreography they made up, and he basically like their audition was like do a mo- a movement that's completely original to you, that you know you think is for this song. And so Mm. he found dancers who did things that were completely unexpected and then could fuse that together into like a cohesive choreography. And so that same, he worked with a choreographer to sort of bring that out of, of those folks. He, that same person was involved in this show. And so it's almost like they took that Mm. to the next level with this because it's very precise. Um, And yeah, it's evocative of, of some of that talking head stuff too, but it's definitely, definitely something these, the two dancers primarily like engineered, um, and then, you know, every once in a while, like a third or a fourth person will join them or, you know, David himself will join them. Um, yeah. But there's a redheaded guy where I was getting with all this. There's, there's this redheaded guy who wears very, very intense eyeshadow. And he, he I can't even describe him. Just look, look up the show. You'll, you'll see him immediately. It's, it's hard to tell if he's stealing focus or just being really in, making really interesting choices. Like I, I oscillate between the two because sometimes I'm like, dude, dial it down well, a little bit. And then there's other things where I'm like, oh, he has to be at this level. Otherwise, it doesn't doesn't work as well. I wonder how much of that is is how the uh, filmed version translates from the live version, because I I oh. just remember it like you know he was striking, but it did I didn't feel like he was stealing focus from Burn. You know, it was, uh, he, I, he's mostly striking because those two come on stage together. Like it's David yeah. Byrne out there with the brain in the jar. And then these two backup singers walk on and just, it's a very redheaded man, you know, and you're like, <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, and I, I with very was, intense eyeshadow. I was close ish, but not like, you know, not like in the first <laughs> 10 rows. And I noticed yeah. how intense the eyeshadow was. Um, so I wonder like on film if that's even more intense, but I, 
so anyway, my journey is backwards because I have avoided the film sort of because I, I'm sort of like don't want to have my memories of the show meshed with the filmed version of it, you know. I see. Um, but I I've think, also I like mean, kind I of haven't... avoided the album since then. Like it's it's in my car, like because I I think I bought a CD at the show or it came with my ticket because I normally don't buy compact discs, you know. Um, but every once in a while I'll, I'll turn it on in the car and then I'm like, okay, well all the songs sound different than I remember, you know, because it's not the live yeah, yeah. feel. It's it's a little bit more st- studio ish. If if you want to, if you're out there listening, you're like, I want to, I don't want to see it, but I want to test it out. Go to Spotify or your your thing of your app of choice. And look for Slippery People from the American Utopia soundtrack. That's by mm. far the most, like that That one really hooked me because I hadn't heard that song in, Jesus, 25 years maybe. Mm. Um, and the uh, the way they do, they actually use that song to, to introduce the band and then they build it instrument by instrument. And then you're yeah. like, holy crap, like this is like, the, it's, and it just kind of shows how talented the band is. And it's, it is a oh, crack God. group of musicians. Like, They're amazing. Cr- I mean, they are, they are so tight. Um, I think it's one of the, the, I think it's one of the Wooten children on bass. I think it's Victor Wooten's son. Oh my God. That makes sense. We know them from like Nashville. Um, That makes sense. Victor Wooten's a legendary bassist, by the way. No, that makes perfect sense. I, you know, he even kind of looked oddly familiar. I was like, I wonder who he is. Probably played Peter Gabriel or something, but no, Victor Wooten makes sense. Um, So anyway, American, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on American, on David Byrne, by the way, by the way, by the way, if you really want to go down the David Byrne rabbit hole, as I have, I highly recommend either discovering or revisiting the early 90s album, Uh-Oh, U-H-O-H. Mm. It's got a picture of heaven with some angels surrounding a throne on which is sitting what is essentially Snoopy the dog in like a really shitty cartoon. Um, it's, it, is a, it is like Brazilian rhythmic weird sort of, you know, what you'd expect from David Byrne, but like the, the rhythmic nature of it and just sort of the the inventiveness of it is really addicting. So that was like, that was the, I had never heard it before. Um, So I'm like, man, this is, uh, I need to, so I've I've gone down a deep, deep David Byrne rabbit hole this year. I don't know that one. So I've added it to my library now, but yeah, I just, yeah, we could do a full David Byrne podcast because I'm talking to you in front of my talking heads poster. And I revere them as like the greatest American band uh, but I'm, but I'm How not, not like intimately, well, I'm just not like intimately familiar with them. I just, every time I hear them, it's like, it's just, it's like heartbreaking and beautiful and joyful. And like, it's, it's like such an emotional experience for me that I, I have to just sort of like dip my toes in from time to time. So anyway, that's interesting. I, I, hmm, that, yeah, we are yeah. going to have to do a different podcast on this because like, I, if I had known this about you, you like mm, six or seven months ago, we could have, I could have really geeked. I, know. Really to, I was, that's what I was trying to really get into the, the rabbit hole. Anyway, today, um, oh, beyond, welcome to panelism know, where we talk about <laughs> David Byrne, David Byrne cast the burn yeah. cast. I don't know how you'd even do a David Byrne podcast. I mean, besides it just being him talking. Now, we've got a book um, that I've been wanting to talk about for quite a while. And yes. it is, it's one of those big, thick books you see in every comic book store, but also like Barnes & Noble like puts it pretty front and center. So you, it's been around, and it's, it looks amazing, but it also kind of looks intimidating. I'm a, I'll just I'll jump right in, and then we'll, I'll, I'll backtrack. It's called The Sculptor by Scott McCloud. 
Actually, and it's written and illustrated by Scott McCloud, like a complete, complete uh, uh, work by him. Um, and first we should, published, should we set uh, up who Scott McCloud is? Oh, I'll get there. I'll get there. It was first okay, published okay, by cool. uh, First Second Books in 2015, which is interesting because that's the year uh, both that we started doing this podcast, but also the year I really got into comics in a big, bad way again. Um, it just it's so many amazing things it, like I, it was, I was hesitant to, to make this proclamation because it was very, very subjective. But at the same time, I'm like, man, I think 2015 was a real banner banner year inflection point for like the comics industry as like in terms of creative output like it just really so many of my favorite books either started or or really came of age during that year and um we've had stuff since but god it just you can't go wrong with so many titles so lucky uh this came out then um scott mcleod some credentials you might know him best from a book called understanding comics which has been out for many years now. I think it came out originally in 93 and has been um, updated and republished several times. It is, it is itself a graphic novel. It's like a, uh, almost like a, a Sunday's cartoon strip style graphic novel where a uh, Scott McCloud caricature walks you through both the history of the visual, of like the pictorial visual medium and how it evolved to become comics, how comics are structured, like the the analysis, the psychology, the the um, uh, uh, artistic sort of uh, tools and tactics. Like he goes into everything. It is like the most definitive guide to loving and understanding this medium. Um, so much so that it just. I mean, that was that was gasoline on a fire for me. Like I was you know kind of mid 2015, and then I found and picked up that book, and I was like, holy crap! Like just it lets you appreciate comics on such a deep level. Um, and he's done a couple sequels. He, I think he did one called Reinventing Comics and then another one called Making, Making comics, comics, you might yeah. have seen. Um, but that Understanding Comics was sort of the thing that launched him. And this entire time, you know, he, had, he did work before those books, but those books were a lot of work onto themselves. And before that, he hadn't really done much, you know, in terms of like a big piece. I think he did a book in like 86 or maybe it was a collection of things. So the whole time you're like, man, he knows a lot about this industry. He's incredibly talented. He knows you know, everything about how to compose a panel. Like if you ever, if you were to ever actually have a textbook, like an actual dictionary definition of the word panelism, it would. I mean, that's <laughs> he could have easily he could have easily called yeah. understanding comics panelism. Like it's it's very much that that scientific. So this whole time you're like, man, what what if he did his own book? What would it be like? And so finally yeah. in 2015, he did. He, he published this this tome called The, the Sculptor. And um, it's just, you know, it's just fantastic. But the expectation was was definitely high for me as a reader coming into it. Like I sort of, you know, I revere his I revere his his point of view on things. And so I'm like, man, I, I'm not going to be that happy if this is sort of just mediocre. Like I'm really hoping. Oh, of this, course. Yeah. You know, this sets uh, sets it up. So. So well, he's a uh, he's I got this. Um, uh, I I think he had this like super indie cred from this book he did called Zot, which ran for many yeah. years. Which mm-hmm. so he's one of these to me. He's like one of these strange figures where, like, a bunch of cool kids knew him. Uh, I'm not including myself in that group because I was unaware of that. I was unaware of him until Understanding Comics had been out for a few years, and it was like. Everyone said, because I had this, a very similar experience, like getting back into comics and everywhere I turned was like, you got to read Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. 
And then my only uh, brush with Scott McCloudum was uh, at my very first Comic-Con, I walked into the men's room and realized he was standing next to me at the urinal. And I was like, oh, wow. wow, that's Scott McCloud, you know? And it was like, I, how do you, you, you can't talk to a man in this position, right? <laughs> and then the guy on the other side I can make goes, so many crass jokes Scott right McCloud. <laughs> oh my God. It's so great to meet you. And I'm standing there going, dude, it's <laughs> not appropriate. So. Interesting. I'm just, I'm yeah, just there's so many I jokes only, I want to make that I won't just, you know, cause you've, you've, you could yeah. probably imagine. But anyway, that. anyway, that's a, um, <laughs> Sorry to grind that to a halt, but yeah, he, I, I, he's he's fascinating because he had that that reputation, and then be, and then sort of like became another different thing, you know. Much yeah, like yeah. When so anyway, David so, Byrne went solo. Anyway, exactly, exactly. Um, I should mention too, by the way, that this copy is one you had given me as a gift a couple of years ago too, and so I had poked at it, but it's one of those where I really wanted to. Uh, you know, have the attention span, you know, the proper attention span and like finish it in like three days um, so that I could really kind of consume it the right way, you know, and not just, and not stretch it out over like two months or something. So I finally recently did. And I've got to say, um, you know, if you ask, does, does this measure up to the expectation I had a hundred percent? Yes. Oh, um, you know, this is a graphic novel in the truest, by the truest definition. Um, it's literary, it's poetic, it's beautiful. It's, you know, it really, it focuses very deeply on just a small set of characters and really tries to, um, you know, through the medium, really, really express certain themes in a, in a new evocative way. There's not, a, I don't have a back of the book. I sort of assembled one from uh, some notes. So this tells the story of David Smith uh, an artist in his mid twenties living in New York. And he is on his last leg creatively, financially, mentally, and death, you know, the actual sort of archetype of death, mm. um, in the guise of David's uncle, Harry gives David 200 days to live in exchange for the power to sculpt anything he can imagine. And, uh, then complications set in when David falls in love. And so there's, there's David, there's, um, there is uh, Meg and there's uh, I think it's uh, Harry uh, is the uncle character. And then there's like a few other characters. And so that's kind of it. So it's really it's really focused um, there. Right. You know, there's some uh, let me talk about the themes, because I think I can really get into story details if I do that. Um, you know, some of the themes that you, you, you see, you know, the struggling artist and the cycles of artistic fame, I think really really emphasized early and then throughout, um, you know, Scott McCloud go, really nails down the fact that uh, for, for most artists, um, especially when you, when you, um, are successful younger or successful early in your, in your career, there's definitely a, a cycle of, they love you. They forget about you, you know? And with David's career, he was definitely the hot, commodity when he when he first sort of emerged his style was all the rage you know he was he did do a, fl a few flashbacks where it's like you know, he was at parties and premieres and openings and then he just he hit a rut and the industry moved moved by him and then he's just been on this sort of crashing trajectory since then and he's 26 so you know he's hmm. also basically having a quarter life crisis that's like another big theme 
Um, you know, he's, he's mid twenties living in New York at the end of a, of a, of a very specific career path right now. Um, you know, almost out of money. His friends are kind of moving on in other ways. And so there's, there's this kind of dual, dual sort of condition of him where he's the struggling artist, but also the struggling, you know, you, I don't want to say millennial, but like struggling, like, you know, mid twenties, something, what is my life going to be? Is it still going to be this? What form does this take now? If it's not this, what am I? And so that's when he finds Harry and you know, Harry makes the, the deal with him where he's like, look, I'll, you know, and Harry's clear. Like he, you know, David knows what he's getting into. He knows that, you know, in 200 days he'll die. He, I think he has like 24 hours to consider it. So you so, know, somewhere, sorry, somewhere th- just to clarify, you said Harry, but it is death that looks like his uncle Harry or yeah, it's his Harry, uncle Harry um, come back. No, 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 it's death. And I think, I think the way they describe it, he was always death. He wasn't like, you know, Harry. And then like, he just takes the form of Harry. Like he was, uh, death comes to earth, you know, and kind of lives a, a normal life now and then. Hmm. And so in this particular case, he was Harry. Um, I believe I'm, I, unless I'm just really mixing that up. I think that's what that was. Um, you know, so like he, you know, he decides he makes this, he makes this bargain bargain. I was gonna say Faustian bargain, but like this bargain and he can create anything and he can take any surface. Like he can take a wooden table or a, a metal pillar and like literally shape it like clay. He can move things around. And so he goes home and immediately just goes hog wild, like, you know, taking his floor and making like waves and shaping all these things. And then, slowly he kind of learns to figure out the power and how it works and he does a show where he just i think yeah it's like a no limits you know just all the gutsy risky choices he wanted to make he he makes all these things and the show goes not according to plan and so it's it's about that for a little while but then you realize he runs into this woman named meg um who's a performance artist it's actually an interesting little meet cute that happens um, she's part of this like theatrical troupe that does kind of flash mob things. So he's walking down the street and everybody on the street is an, is an actor and she sort of emerges with angel wings on and tells, uh, tells him it's going to be okay. And you know, he's, he thinks he's hallucinating. And later on you realize that like, Oh, they all start clapping. And he, he was like the, the sole audience member for this performative thing they're doing. So Meg, who's the star of this and David eventually do start dating. He's, He's obsessed with her at first and then she's got another boyfriend. So he's, he does the, you know, that thing that everybody in their twenties do does where you sort of have a crush on somebody. You gotta, you gotta wait, you gotta figure out what your relationship with that person could be or might be forever. If that doesn't, you know, if you know, they don't break up with that other person and eventually they, they fall, they fall in love and they are together. And then, so the rest of the story is, but, uh, so he of course knows well, like <laughs> he's going to die. Yeah, that's the rest right. of the story. So it's like, how does he spend the rest of those 200 days with this woman that is eventually he's eventually going to lose? And how does he still make something of the gift he's been given? Um, and, 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 you know, because he's like, look, I'm going to go out. People are going to remember who I am. He just, you know, even though you have the power to shape anything, what do you do with it? And he, you know, there's a couple of times that he tries and fails, even though he has this ability to do these crazy things, people still don't like his art. And so... You know, as as it's going, and there's this there's this sort of it's this you know this climax is coming where he's gonna do something truly amazing. You just don't know what it is, hmm. and it actually ends up being incredibly be- like a very emotional, beautiful thing that that sort of you know ends ends his career and and thus the story. So I'm not spoiling that. Um, 
you know, there's a, the, the, the other theme that it really, I think, weaves its way through this is the temporary nature of life. Once he makes that bargain, like there's a lot of the way he views the world, the way he interacts with people, um, the choices he makes, the chances he takes, like it's all highly predicated on this, on this, this deadline, this looming tick, you know, this ticking clock. And so it's, you know, how does he look at life that way? And, you know, should he have been looking at life that way this entire time? And all these questions kind of flood in. And then you realize that in 200 days, he'll be 27, which is the age that so many people, so many young artists die. Um, Am I not, if I'm not mistaken, I think Amy Winehouse, Hank, am I, is Hank Williams one of those guys too? Kurt Cobain, oh, he, maybe? Hank Williams Sr. died before he was 27. But yeah, Kurt Cobain, right? Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse, uh, um, yeah, 27 Club. Yeah, the 27, so like, I'm sure that wasn't, uh, that wasn't unintentional. Um, Jim so, Morrison. You know, like, so, yeah, yeah. So all these all these amazing artists um, died, you know, at, at coincidentally at age twenty seven, and so that's when David's going to die as well. And so what is this, you know what is he going to do with that time, with that gift, um, you know, for one last hurrah, while at the same time sort of realizing something that he's always wanted that uh, a lot of people don't get to have, which is sort of this this sort of true love situation that he's going to eventually have to tell her like, hey, I you know, you're you're not going to have me after this point. So there's a lot that's baked into this. The length is definitely justified, but it, it flows so quickly. Like you, I think the chapter there's, there's, I think five or six like big chapter chunks and it, it doesn't break down like a trade paperback would. It's definitely a graphic novel. That's now you know, are, are there chapter breaks in it? Like a, like a yes. justice league might happen. Like have a Snyder, a Snyder cut. There are. Yes. <laughs> Yes, but in this in this sense, the chapters were intentional from the beginning, and they <laughs> they stop they stop the pace, to, and they you know they allow you to like maybe pick up again like uh, two months later, you know, or two mm, weeks later. Gotcha. You know? So it's, it lets you like the chapter ends, and then you can always start fresh on the story wherever you want to. Um, mm. The art, which I haven't spoken about yet, is also great. It is um, uh, black and white with shades of blue, so blue is sort of the, oh, the highlighting color, which um, you know, you think might get a little tedious or monotonous, um, and it doesn't. It really, I think, because there's the story is kind of heavy, and um, you know, you mentally want to really lock into the character moments and the feelings and everything. I think uh, a more, unlike American Utopia, a more elaborate color palette might exhaust the senses. You know, it might make well, it a harder book to get through. And McLeod's kind of known for that, like all like understanding comics and making comics and the third one you mentioned that I forgot about. We're all like, he has this very uh, clean black line on a white background style. Like that's just what he's yeah. known for. Zot was like that. So it's, it's, I can't even imagine him working with color. So just the fact that you said there's blue in it kind of shocked me. Yeah. And it's just, it's just like shading, right? It's not like deliberate. It's not right. deep, dark blue or vibrant blue. Um, the whole thing definitely feels like a manga. It has very much a manga yeah. style of character design um, and use of black and white to punctuate certain things. You know, cause you can't just draw in black and white and go, you know, unless you're Frank Miller, you can't just draw in black and white and go, well, that works too. Like I was going to color, but I guess I'm not like, if you're going to design comics in black and white, like it's a very specific process in terms of how you're going right. to, you know, structure your character looks and what they're wearing. Like, David wears a black t-shirt pretty much through the entire thing. Um, 
and you know in the world of the comic it might be black but that just that might just be a color you know any sort of rotating colors but it's 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 easy to separate him in any scene he's in even if he's, he's wearing like a, a cardigan over it um hmm. but yeah it definitely has like if you're a fan of things like uh death note or any of those sort of uh you know long-running manga graphic novel series like this this feels at home there it's definitely not a manga in you know uh, officially well, but it does have that that sort of vibe to it he uh i there it's um not a not a manga artist but he reminds me of adrian tomine's work um yeah great, great and example. uh and i'm also thinking of um like that that's an associate i just make that association like i always when you said it it was on a uh an imprint called first second books i actually did a double take because i thought no this is drawn in quarterly it's like right next to <laughs> you know adrian tomine um but he also reminds me of uh i think the oh man what who am i trying to think of um i was about to say osama tezuka but that's the person who did astro boy and uh i'm trying to think of this um yeah, oh, shoot. I'll come up with it. I think of the later. artist of XXX Tentacon. XXX <laughs> uh, Tentacon, or was that X, or the one that I had talked about Xaxian or whatever? Um, yes, that that's the one. Uh, yeah, there was an episode. For those of you who are wondering what, what the hell we're talking about, there was an episode we did a while ago where Todd reviewed a manga called yeah, Xaxian or something. But the yeah, yeah. the art has. The art has very sexist, sexualized sort of. It was crazy. Throughout. No, actually, Yoshihiro Tatsumi. I'm glad I looked that up because I would not have remembered. But he has done a bunch of books that are uh, really interesting, like just sort of slice of life drama. So it's like got that older 60s manga style to it, you know, but it's yeah, black and yeah. white. And it's telling a it's telling a, a slice of life story, like a real life thing, not um uh, uh, r- r- robot spaceships with, um, I- you know, enlarged body parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. Didn't mean to divert too much, but, uh, yeah, I would say Tatsumi and Tomine, um, and McLeod are all, you know, familiar. Tomine does these other slice me, of life stories. Uh, uh, Tomine's a great reference on this. I, I, I'm just looking at my Tomine wish list and I'm, I need to stop cause I'm going to start to order. Um, it's crazy. Uh, one of the things, if you if you want to know, if you always kind of do like a, uh, if you like this, you'll like this. Um, you know, if you just if you like good graphic novels, I hate to be that broad. I mean, Jesus, have this. When we talk about com- books worth having on your shelf, there yeah. should be a carved out place on every shelf for this book, no matter who you are. Um, if you've read Understanding Comics and you liked it, then this you're ready for this. Like, don't hesitate, jump on in. But I'll also say, if you're not a big comics person or graphic novel person, you maybe just to stumble onto this. Um, if you've seen, this is going to sound weird, but if you've seen the movie, the Keanu Reeves, uh, 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 Charlize Theron movie, Sweet November. Oh, this. Man. I thought you were going to say 47 like, Ronin. Oh, Jesus. Is she in that too? No, no, no. But it's one oh. of my favorite Keanu Reeves movies. <laughs> no, Sweet November. I mean, it. Also starring, sort of uh, cameoing Frank Langella, which Jesus, mm. but like, it's um, it's a movie. It's one of those like kind of rom com kind of Keanu Reeves movies, but it has a very sweet sort of sentiment to it, and also based on a ticking clock for one of the characters, and um, a lot of the same themes, oddly enough. So if you ever liked that or thought, hey, mm. this could be better um, under the right hands, like then this book is is for you. Um, you know, there's, it's kind of like almost like a spiritual successor to that, that kind of a story. So, 
um, while st- while still you know viciously being its own thing. Like don't you know it's this is you're not going to read a book like this. Um, well, so- but yet it, I was going to say yet it still will feel familiar. It's like oh I, I've I've read stories like this, but this is just a really great execution of of these concepts. Well, so let me ask you this: Would it have worked? as well if the character were older and you can answer that briefly and then I'll, I'll ask you a follow up because 26 Uh, is young. So I'm wondering if you, when you say older, what do you mean? How old are we talking? Well, I'll tell you like, so when you mentioned mid twenties and then you talked about how he was initially popular and his career had kind of faded, I think career, like you're 26, like (laughs) you don't have a career yet. You know, you career just started. Um, and, uh, so I was thinking like, oh, well, I wonder if this is the author reflecting on himself and somehow he placed it at an earlier age in his life or something. And then I thought, well, he, uh, when you said the thing about club 27, I was like, oh, maybe that was the impetus. Like, is that really important that like, you know, and, and is, or is that just sort of a detail of the plot? Like, oh, I'm going to die at 27, just like all these other artists. Does the does the story work if he's older? 50. No. Yeah. No. It does not. It does not. Okay. Gotcha. Because you need the the choice he has to you know when he decides whether or not he's going to take this deal. If you if you do a story about uh, you know somebody in their mid 40s, you know 50s, obviously anybody older, um the 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 choice is easier to make. Like, look, I've lived this long. Yeah, I'll live 200 mm. more days and go out on top when you're in your mid twenties. It's like you have so much more life ahead of you than, than behind you. Good point. It's a lot harder to make that choice, right? It's a lot harder to go shoot. I Hmm. either go out in a blaze of glory now, but I'm not going to have more life. Like I'm not going to, and especially if he hasn't met Meg yet. So it's like, you know, I, I don't have a wife or kids or any of the things that, um, you know, I haven't experienced, you know, a lot of what I would if I didn't take this deal, but Hmm. I may never be remembered for anything. Like I may never be. So it's, it's that choice, which comes very early on in the story. Like it only works if he's around that age where it's like, okay, he's, he's mature enough to make the choice. Like you don't want to do it to like a 16 or 17 year old. It's like, look, you haven't, you don't know. Um, but a mid 20 something is like, okay, you can rent a car. You can make this choice. Here you go. Here, here's where it is. So it's like to have that. <laughs> you can rent you know, a car. You can, <laughs> you can make a deal with death. It's, it all goes together. Same, same age. 25 you're good but he's um and then i think i think there is sort of the temptation to go much like his contemporaries he died when he was 27 and it's just that Mm. sort of that burst that burst of genius before the flame goes out i think is is sort of the the appeal of of that age interesting no that this is all uh so i have not read it i'm not asking you these things imagining that i've not read it it was recommended to me um by a friend who's an architect and I can't remember the circumstances under which I got it for you. I don't think I got it at Comic-Con. I think I just had to do an Amazon order. Um, but I believe that's right. But yeah, I had at least, you know, like flipped through it or something. And, and um, it's one of those weird books where the cover kind of put me off. So I went purely on the recommendation of this friend. Like, you yeah. know, you're going to enjoy this. You said that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that because the one failing of this thing is the cover. It is just not, I mean, I removed my dust jacket and what's underneath it is mm. a 
a full page, like on the front, it's a full page image of David on the back. It's a full page image of, of Meg in the blue tinted design. And that, that's still not the best, but it's better than the cover. The cover you see does not really give you any aspect of the story in an accurate way at all. And really underserves the the book that it is like, it's, it's bizarre to me that that, I would love to. I would love to get Scott McCloud on the show and be like, "What were the decisions behind the cover? Was it a publisher thing? Yeah. Did you think that was a good idea? Like, it just—it could have been so many other things. It would have been so much more interesting. Um, and yeah, and I'll be honest, it was a. It, even though you gave it to me, it was kind of a, a deterrent at first. I'd be like, "Well, yeah. how good is this?" <laughs> and you, well, know, you kind of fish through. Yeah. It, right. It's that's interesting. You know, I had a, I think I had a similar reaction with Zot too, where mm. and it, which is funny because it's not like the covers for understanding comics and making comics are are super alluring or whatever. They tell you exactly what's inside, but somehow they worked better for me than Zot and Sculptor. So I, you know, well, those are more academic. Those are more like academic books. So those, those maybe are, yeah, those maybe are I was less important. Forgiving. <laughs> Well, it's a little less important for those because, I mean, they sell those in college bookstores, too. Right. So right. it's like those, you know, they can be interesting and engaging, but they don't have to be, you know, for a gra- graphic novel cover design is is very important. We haven't really talked about this. Yeah. Maybe we'll do it on a future a future episode. But, like, I compare it to a book I reviewed recently, um, The World of Adina, which the mm. cover alone, if I knew nothing about Moebius, which, you know, I, I'm a big fan coming into it, but if I knew nothing about Moebius, I'd see that cover and go, what is this? I need to, this is it. What, what is happening here? I need to have this. Um, several other covers I could, I could point to as well, but like that's, that's the one weakness to this whole thing. Like I just, it almost feels like it's a publisher uh, weakness. Like this, like, I, you know, that was maybe. That's exactly what I was going to say. It almost feels like the publisher decided on the cover that might look the most comic booky or something, but I'll throw a cover at you that I think is in the same style that would have worked, which is blankets. Yes. Uh, by Craig yes, Thompson. Yes, 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 yes. Great comparison. Yeah. yeah. And similar, similar artistic style too. Like that's, you know, yeah. in terms of books that this looks like also, you know, blankets is up there too. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I, I, you know, talking about that art is re- I really wonder now, um, what, what a person who's new to Scott McCloud's work would think if they saw that, cover and then if they saw the inside because you know there's there's a disconnect there somehow <laughs> i would like to though publicly uh tell first second books it's not you uh because i'm looking at some of their other stuff and it's very oh. well very well packaged um so well, i don't know it's maybe this is scott mccloyd himself like or cloud himself like oh that's what i think it, the cover should be it's just it's strange because it's it does not it makes you think of a whole different story that this is not um, right. It makes you think right. that like he's he's either haunted by some like ghost girl or his powers that he's able to turn you know bricks into you know or maybe he creates a a, a you know kind of a fake brick girlfriend or you know <laughs> he sculpts or or like he sculpts his well, own woman like like mannequin style and brings her to life and it's like that's that's what the cover oh, suggests and that's classic. not what this is. Well, Kim, and I'll tell Kim you, Cottrell is not going to emerge from a wall. Sorry, <laughs> not not having read it or and thinking about like seeing the cover without reading, you know, the the uh, summary of it. Um, I truly thought that the entire thing was going to be sort of like uh, not. 
I guess maybe allegorical or something where, where it was really going to be about more about like the sculptor's interior life as a sculptor. You know, oh. I thought, I thought, Oh, this is just like the cover is like an allegory. Like he doesn't actually get any power to bring things alive he, or, or to shape, you know, uh, objects as he wishes. I thought it was going to be like a real life story about a sculptor. And we were just seeing, like, ah. so it's funny that I sort of reversed it. Where in that case, the, <laughs> the cover was actually telling me like, no, he's got powers. And I should clarify, um, he doesn't bring anything to life, but he can shape. Correct. Correct. Right. Else. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, it, it does function as you were, you were talking, it does kind of function um, not Black Mirror, but like that, um, like Electric Dreams on Amazon, which is based on a bunch of Philip K. Dick books. Like it has that yeah, kind but, of almost like melancholy, where it's just like mm. you know, kind of you know, kind of like uh, like you know, a, a, a unique set of, of circumstances and choices, and, and not just you know, I don't want to use the word dystopian because nothing about it is dystopian, but like you know, it's sort of these these fantastical things happen under the, you know, very, very human, very real circumstances. And it's, it's using kind of a, a slightly heightened fantastical thing to, to tell you know, to really delve deep into true real human emotions. Like it's got, it's, I don't know. It just, it has that kind of flair to it. If you like any of those electric dream shorts or even a better, maybe even a better example is the um, tales from the loop, which is also on Amazon. Oh. Also amazing. It definitely feels like it's, it's kind of of that world, like of mm, that sort of okay. sensibility um, where it's just, it's, it's beautiful, but there's definitely sort of a sad kind of, kind of whisper throughout that, you know, is going to break your heart at, at some point and does multiple times, but in a good way. So anyway, hmm. I highly recommend this highly worth, you know, it's you know, in terms of like, you know, is it worth having on your shelf? Foomp. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, um, this seems like a no brainer, but print or digital. Uh, I don't even know if it's offered digitally. That's a great oh. question. I would say, you know, <laughs> you could, you know, the panels work in such a way that I think cover you know, guided view could work, but that almost seems like a, it would feel impossible to finish because, you know, just even as a physical book, there are, you know, God, it doesn't have a page count, but it's got to be in the five or 600 page realm. Um, four, I oh, know here we go. 400. Give me a second. 480, 481. So yeah, just shy of 500 pages. So imagine that in guided view, right? It wow. was just not. Yeah. Um, but let me just look because I'd love to make sure. I, I, I did look before. and it was, it is not on comiXology. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah. Hey, oh, it's on the print, Kindle. The print version. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's on Kindle, but I, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. And you know, for, for a book of this caliber, print should be mandatory and then just remove yeah. the dust jacket. And you'll have it on your <laughs> you'll have it on your shelf in the way that God intended. So you're saying the 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 cover without the dust jacket much better. Yeah, m better. I mean, it's again, it's just a character picture of, of right, David on right. the back. It's a character picture of Meg, but I think represents the book even more than the cover you see. You know, the dust the dust jacket cover. I'd rather this. This is at least you're like okay. You know, the look on his face and the fact he's connected to this girl somehow. Like this is okay. I can. What is this? It just makes you anticipate the story in the right way. Anyway, hmm. uh, you can you can go and find other books like this uh, that we've talked about, and uh, I've I've run out of things to say, Todd. It's you run out of gas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I this is a great example of like uh, if for some reason you're new to the show and you stuck around after uh, um, 
uh, Burning Up, which is our David Byrne podcast preview that we did at the beginning of this show. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> I love it. Thanks for sticking around for Comic Chat, which is what we actually talk about. But yeah, this is a great example of one of those books we want to cover, which is like pull one of those books out that you might not have heard of. It's a few years old and it's not necessarily like a superhero book on one of the big two labels. So I'm so appreciative that you chose this book to do. Um, and it, it, you know, once again, reminds me like I have this reading list that's just growing and growing. Um, but yeah, more of those books can be found uh, at panelism.inc. That's dot I-N-K. Um, that will take you, that is our website where you can find all of our old episodes um, where we generally, the title of the episode is going to tell you what book we're talking about. And we are also on Instagram at panelism.inc. Uh, rarely though, both of us are pretty disconnected from social media these days. <laughs> Yeah, sadly. Um, Try as I may. Just not- yeah, I mean, we, we would love to have discussions there, but it is uh, um, yeah, increasingly difficult to just sit on social media, um, especially with this looming TBR pile I have, which is, which oh, is know, just right? getting taller by the day. Um, but anyway, that's, uh, ah, that's The Sculptor by Scott McCloud, a man I've met in a men's room, but fortunately did not introduce <laughs> myself to. Um. <laughs> I love that that's a story. I just love that that's a story. That's a perfect way to end it. We'll just end it right there. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>